If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to the epistle of 1 Peter. We return this morning to our study, our series of sermons in this book of 1 Peter, and we return to chapter 2 this morning, and we'll read together verses 4 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Please follow along as I read 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Let's pray once more. Father, there's so much here in these verses for us to see and for us to comprehend. Help us in these moments to penetrate into the the depth of truth that is here in these verses. Open our minds to understand and comprehend the Scriptures, and may you teach us the truth by the help of your Spirit. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. So we return this morning after a couple of months away to our series in 1 Peter, Uh, I know it's been quite a while. Uh, We have a lot to cover this morning, uh, so I'm not going to give a very extensive review. I'm just going to assume that you remember all those sermons in 1 Peter perfectly and that you can recall them to memory uh, right now as I preach. No, of course not. But um, I'm just going to give brief context for where we are and say a little more to catch us up to speed next week about Peter's overall argument and where these verses fit in that overall argument. But just by way of reminder... The Apostle Peter, who was, of course, the Lord's disciple, uh, is writing from Rome. He's writing to Gentile Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor. He refers to them in the opening verses of 1 Peter 1 as elect exiles, uh, that is, those who have been chosen of God and who have been born again uh, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is writing to them to inform them who they are, to inform them of what they are, and therefore, how they ought to live in the present age as exiles, how they're to live in their relationship with God and with one another and with the world around them as they look ahead to the hope of heaven. Now, we're again in these crucial verses, crucial to Peter's overall argument, here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Uh, we actually were in these verses, if you recall, uh, last time when we were together, when we broke from our series in 1 Peter, uh, there at the end of November. And in that last sermon, we considered in verses 4 through 10 what these verses teach us specifically about Christ. 
and who he is as the rock, as the stone, as the cornerstone, as Peter would put it, and how it is that everybody's fate is tied up with how they respond to him, Jesus, the cornerstone. Now today, and God willing, next week, I want us to be again in these verses, chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, and I want to talk about what this passage teaches us now about the church and about the people of God, about who we are as God's people. This week, I really just want to ask a question of this passage. I want to ask a question and then appreciate this passage's answer to the question. And then next week, we'll look more carefully and expounding the particular phrases and expressions that Peter uses. But this week, I want to ask this question. What do we learn in these verses, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10, what do we learn in these verses about Christian identity? What do we learn from these verses about Christian identity? And I think there are two main answers that we can derive from these verses, and they'll form the two headings for the sermon this morning. So point number one, what do we learn about Christian identity? Point number one, Christian identity is formed through and defined by an attachment to Christ. Christian identity, who we are as God's people, what it means to be a Christian. Christian identity is formed through and defined by an attachment to Christ. First of all, Christian identity is formed through an attachment to Christ. Peter has already told these believers a couple of times in chapter 1 that they have been born again, that they have a new identity, that they are new creatures. And this new identity and status confers on them all kinds of blessings from God. But now he speaks in greater depth to their new identity, which is first of all formed through an attachment to Christ. So look at verse 4. It begins with these words, as you come to Him, or it could be translated in coming to Him, or coming to Him, and then it lists all these things in verses 4 through 10, as you come to Him. This phrase introduces uh, this new section from verses 4 through 10, and the function of this phrase, as you come to Jesus, in coming to Jesus, the function of this phrase at the start of this section is to signal to us that the reality and the experience of coming to Jesus Christ creates and controls this new situation we find ourselves in. It creates and controls our new identity as the people of God. It is in coming to Jesus that our new identity is formed and defined. So he says, as you come to Him, verse 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, don't just pass over this phrase, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The idea is I can only come to God through Jesus Christ. I can only enjoy my new identity as God's own possession through Jesus and what Jesus has done. My access to God depends upon Jesus. My attachment to Jesus is the very thing that creates this new situation in which I am God's, I am a part of His people, and I now have this special access to Him. My attachment to Jesus brings about this new situation. Christian identity is formed through an attachment to Jesus. Now, we see this further and in the most striking ways as we read on in the passage. So, verse 6, we read, for it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, God has placed His stone in 
Zion, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him, this stone that God has set, will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, this stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. When we looked at these verses several weeks ago, we considered how, how, how one's fate is bound up in their response to Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. The stone has been set. God has set His stone definitively. Peter quotes from Isaiah 28 and then Psalm 118 and then again Isaiah chapter 8. For those who believe in Him, this stone, this cornerstone, they will be saved. They will not be put to shame. He will become the cornerstone, the foundation of their lives, and they will not be put to shame. They'll be honored. But for those who reject Him, He's still the cornerstone, but He becomes to them a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So honor and favor and grace to everyone who believes, stumbling and shame for those who reject this stone. What makes the difference? It is like the world is divided into two types of people. What makes the difference between these two types of people? It is one's response to the cornerstone. It's one's response to Jesus Christ. And what is it that makes people uh, to belong to God and to be a people for His own possession, to be part of this new nation and this chosen race and this holy priesthood? Peter is saying it is their response to Jesus Christ. If they respond to Him in faith and believe on Him and are united to Him, they're honored. They receive grace and favor from God, and they are given this new identity as the people of God. For all those who reject Him, they are not given this privilege. They're not counted as God's people. There's only everlasting shame and stumbling for them. But the main point is this. My Christian identity, the privileged status of belonging to God and being His people, it is given to me. I get it by an attachment to Jesus Christ, by responding to Jesus in repentance and faith, by believing upon the cornerstone, by coming to Him, by offering my sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. I must come to God through Jesus, and it's only through Him that I am given this new identity as God's child, as being part of God's people, as being a people for His own possession. This identity is formed through an attachment to Christ, but it's not only formed through an attachment to Christ. It is also defined by an attachment to Christ. Our Christian identity is formed through and defined by an attachment to Christ. Just consider the controlling image Peter is using in these verses to appreciate that my identity as a Christian is defined by my attachment to Christ. What's the image Peter is using? Well, he's talking about Christ as this living stone, indeed the cornerstone. And he's the cornerstone of this building that's being built where these other living stones are coming together. So, so children, let me ask you, I wonder if you remember when we talked about the cornerstone. I know it's been a long time ago, and you've probably opened way too many presents between now and then, so it might be out of your mind, okay? Uh, but do you remember what we said about the cornerstone? We don't use this language a lot in our day. But in those days, if you were going to build a building, erect a building, the most important part of that building, that structure that you're erecting, would be the cornerstone. The cornerstone was this big, solid, firm stone. It's the first stone to be set in the building, and it becomes the foundation for the building. And all the other stones, or bricks, or rocks, or whatever it is you're using to build the building, all the other stones 
find their place in the building in relation to that cornerstone. So, so here's the cornerstone at the corner of the building. All the other stones you're going to place will get their, their position based on where they stand in relation to that cornerstone. Thus, the cornerstone is the foundation for the whole building. And all the other stones are just, just rocks with no particular place or purpose until you fit them in relation to the cornerstone. That's the image Peter is using. And he says that Jesus, he's the cornerstone of the building. He's the foundation. And we, who are Christians, are like living stones that come together and fashion a spiritual house, like a, like a temple for God. We become this building that God is building. But you see, those living stones, those Christians, they have their position, their status, their identity based on where they stand in relation to the cornerstone who is Jesus. It really is an extraordinary image, and it accomplishes Peter's purpose quite well, which is to make one's relation to Christ the foundation of Christian identity and Christian purpose. Apart from the cornerstone, I'm just a rock. I have no particular function, no particular purpose. But when I'm placed in relation to the cornerstone, now I have an identity. Now I have a purpose. My identity and purpose is defined in relation to the Lord Jesus. Christian identity is defined by determined by one's attachment to Jesus, where one stands in relation to Jesus. Now, before leaving this point, just take a moment to appreciate how profound and even radical an idea it is to believe that my identity is defined by my attachment to Jesus Christ. I think how radical an idea it is to say my identity is actually defined by something outside of me, where I stand in relation to someone else, namely Jesus Christ. Someone asks you, Christian, who are you? What is the meaning of your life? What is the foundation of your identity? Friends, to the Christian, there is no Christless answer to that question. He defines us. He says, who we are. He determines everything about us. He determines my identity because my identity is based on my attachment to Him, which in our day and age is a most radical idea. In case you're not aware, right now the public arena is one giant battleground over identity. Identity trumps everything else. We are obsessed with identity, and we are obsessed with seeing ourselves and one another through the lens of identity. What do I mean? A number of us have been reading a book by Carl Truman. He's a historian, a cultural critic. He's a believer as well, minister in the OPC. We've been reading this book by Carl Truman called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. The book is exceptionally incisive and penetrating in its understanding of modern notions of identity and what Truman calls expressive individualism. It's a big phrase, expressive individualism, which is the idea that who I am is defined by my uh, inner feelings and intuitions. Like that is, 
what defines my identity, my inner urges, my inner feelings, my inner intuitions about myself. And in order to realize my identity, to actualize my personhood, I have to express those inner feelings and urges and intuitions to the world, because that's my identity, that's who I am. I am what I feel inside. He calls that expressive individualism. And so the sort of provocative way that Truman uh, puts this in his introduction to the book is he takes this phrase. The phrase is this, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. He takes that phrase and he asks the question, what sort of shifts need to take place historically, culturally, and socially for that phrase, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, to go from being a transparently ludicrous and laughable statement as it would have been just 30 years ago, if you would have shared that phrase in your parents' generation, your grandparents' generation, it would just be laughable. It would be an absurd idea. But what has to take place in a culture for that phrase, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, to go from being laughable and ludicrous to being a deeply meaningful, coherent, and plausible expression of someone's identity. Moreover, how is it that it has become a notion whose legitimacy cannot be questioned without charges of bigotry and hate speech? So, thousands of years of human history, that has been a, a phrase that no one would embrace. But in very short compass, with rapid cultural change, that phrase is now seen to be coherent and meaningful. So Truman's asking the question, how did the shift take place? How did the idea that I am what I feel become plausible? And he very deftly argues that it was not primarily a matter of a change in behaviors and policies. We didn't get to this place where we define identity based on our inner feelings because the laws changed. Rather, the society as a whole has undergone a larger change in the frame of thinking with respect to identity in the first place. We have developed new notions of what it means to be a person, and that's how this phrase has come to be plausible and coherent. So this is sort of the cultural arc uh, that Truman surveys. See if you can track with us. There's three sort of plot developments. He says, first of all, I'll just give you the three and then I'll explain them. First of all, the self became psychologized. Psychology became sexualized, and sex became politicized. Right, the self became psychologized. What's his idea there? Working mostly with the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he, he makes the point that for, for hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of years, most people define their identity by where they stand in relation to a transcendent being, a transcendent God, and where they stood in relation to the external world around them. But through the Enlightenment, after the Enlightenment, there began to be this shift. There was a movement among philosophers to look inward for meaning, to derive who I am. As the existence and knowledge of a transcendent God became less and less plausible, we began to look inward for meaning and for purpose. And so what happened is the self became psychologized. I began to think of myself based on my inner feelings and who I see inside when I look inward, rather than looking outward to the world around me or looking upward to a transcendent God. So the self became psychologized, psychology became sexualized. How did that happen? Well, largely through the work of figures like Sigmund Freud, 
who, who taught that the most significant feelings, like when you look inward and you're trying to discern who you are and you're assessing your feelings inwardly, the most important ones are your sexual feelings, your sexual urges, your sexual notions. Like that's the most important feeling, the most identity-defining quality about you. The self became psychologized, psychology became sexualized, and then the third sort of plot movement, sex became politicized. And almost everyone in this room has been alive as that has happened. This has come through the sexual revolution. And figures like Wilhelm Reich and Herbert Marcuse, who argued that if sexual urges and feelings are identity-defining, they define who I am at my core, my inner feelings and intuitions, well, then to deny me sexual rights would be an attack on my very person. It would be to deny my identity, my personhood, because the self became psychologized, psychology became sexualized, and sex became then politicized, which is why if you question the notion, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, if you tell someone that's not a proper way to think about yourself, it's seen as an attack on someone's person, their very identity, because who we are, how we conceive of ourselves in this day and age is what we feel inwardly. That is what defines identity in this day and age. So what's Truman's point in all this? If I lost you in all that cultural history, come back now. What's his point? He's arguing that identity is where the conversation is happening. Identity is the battleground today where the warfare of ideas is taking place. It's not primarily about behaviors and policies. These are only symptoms of a greater and more fundamental shift that has taken place. People conceive of identity in a different way than they did a hundred years ago. Today we don't look outward to determine who we are. I don't look to the transcendent to determine a sense of personal meaning. I look inward to my feelings and intuitions, and there I find out who I am, and then I realize my identity. I manifest my identity and personhood to the world by expressing it by living out those inner feelings and intuitions. Now, why make this massive detour? And it has been a massive detour. It is to say this by way of application. To say to people today that your identity is not in your sexual orientation, it is not in your gender, it is not in your feelings, it is not in your race, it is not in your socioeconomic status, it is not in your earnings potential, it is not in your inner sense of self, it is not in your baggage or in your bad and sinful choices, but it is defined based on where you stand in relation to Jesus Christ is an assertion of titanic importance, of Himalayan significance. I mean, it, it, it just totally changes the ground upon which we're engaging. Like this is one of the most radical ideas Christianity has to offer. The Christian faith says you are not defined by your inner feelings and intuitions, but are defined rather by where you stand in relation to your Creator God, and where you stand in relation to His Son, Jesus Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man, and who is the Savior of all those who look to Him in faith. And this then becomes some of the greatest news Christianity has to offer. Like, you don't have to be defined by your native, sinful, inner urges, 
but you can be born again and can be changed into a new creature and can be steadily transformed from one degree of glory to another as God fashions you more and more after the image of His own dear Son. And if you belong to Him, the day is coming when you will be raised to peerless perfection, to live in perfect paradise with Him forever. The gospel speaks a better word than expressive individualism, that I am what I feel. You are not what you feel. You are who you are based on where you stand in relation to your Creator God and His Son, the Lord Jesus. And the message of the gospel is that you can have this new identity that comes by new birth where God will consider you to be His very child. You will be His. You will belong to Christ and be attached and be united to Him if you come to Him in repentance and faith. I mean, think about this. What are the implications of believing that my identity is defined by my sexual urges? Like, play that out, work that out. What, is, what does that mean? What implications will that have? Well, first of all, I will make sex my idol because my sexual desires are who I am at my very core. I will view my sexual preferences as ultimate, absolute, and defining. And furthermore, I will view anyone who does not approve of my sexual intuitions as a threat and a hostile opponent. Now, this is crucial. If my sexual urges and feelings ever become the source of shame or regret, I will hate myself. Indeed, I must hate myself because I understand my sexual urges to be who I am at my very core which I would argue is one of the reasons why there is such a high correlation between things like transgenderism and suicide. Because if my sexual intuitions become a source of shame for me, I have to hate myself because that's who I am. That's my identity, what I feel inside. But friends, we have good news. We have something to say to the world about identity. Your identity is not what you feel. It's not your inner urges and desires. It's not your intuitions about yourself. Your identity is defined by looking outside of yourself and understanding who you are and what you are before God. And so we have to be prepared. If we're going to be faithful in this generation as the church, we have to be prepared, prepared to articulate a distinctly Christian view of identity. Christian identity does not look inward at our sinful feelings and intuitions to derive our identity. It lurks outward to Jesus to whom we must come to find our true identity in Him. It's the cornerstone that matters to bring it back to the text. It's coming to Him that can give me new identity in Christ. And we must also not only speak this message to a watching world, we must speak it to ourselves. This idea is to pervade my sense of self, my self-awareness, my notions of personhood and identity, that I belong to Jesus and He defines who I am. As a Christian, I must see myself this way. I must recognize I am who He says I am. Not even necessarily what I feel about myself. I am who Christ says I am. I am defined by my relation to Him. And this has entailments for my obedience, for my affections, for how I use my time, for how I view my remaining sin, for what I'm living for, for how I view my relationships with those around me. It reorients everything when I understand at the deepest level I am defined by my attachment to Christ. My identity is in Him. 
This is the genius of that song, Before the Throne, that we sing often. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, he's saying that's what defines you, the guilt that's there, the real guilt that's there. That's what defines you. That's what you are. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. I come to Jesus, the cornerstone, and I recognize who I am in him. I recognize, as the song says, my name is written on his hands. My name is graven on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. He defines who we are. I am who he says that I am. Am. And that's the good news about identity from this passage. But it gets better. I spent a lot of time on that first point. Let's see if I could pick up the pace. Second point, and by the way, the final point, okay? First of all, Christian identity is formed through and defined by an attachment to Christ. Secondly, and this is really much more the emphasis of the passage, actually, Christian identity involves... Inclusion and participation in a new community, namely the people of God. Christian identity involves inclusion and participation in a new community, namely the people of God. So look again at verses 4 and 5, if you would. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, plural, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now look down at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Though this passage does tell us how an individual can become a Christian, and that's by coming to Jesus and believing upon the cornerstone, Though this passage does tell us about how an individual can become a Christian and be given a new identity in Christ, the overwhelming emphasis of the passage is on the Christian's introduction into the new community that God is building. The emphasis of the passage is on our corporate identity, our identity as a community of God's people. You can see this plainly in all these collective nouns that Peter uses. We're said in verse 5 to be a spiritual house, like a, like a household. So to be a holy priesthood, not one priest, but a priesthood. In verse 9, we're said to be a chosen race, like a whole new race of people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Again, verse 10, you are God's people. These are all collective nouns. There is in these verses a prevailing awareness of our corporate identity, our collective identity, our community identity as the people of God. For now, my main purpose is not to explain the precise meaning of all these expressions, chosen race, holy priesthood, chosen nation. We'll look at those next week. So we'll expound those nouns and what they entail upon us. For now, in the minutes that remain, I want to focus on the fact that we are a new community 
and highlight a few of Peter's assumptions about community in this passage. They're there in the text, but he just assumes them. So he doesn't take time to explain them. But I think if we look at the text carefully, we'll see these are Peter's assumptions as he lays out these different ideas about the new community. Okay, first assumption. There's three of them. First assumption, to be a Christian is to be part of a new community. Very simple and fundamental, right? To be a Christian at all is to be a part of a new community. It is to be a member of God's people, the church. When God causes a sinner to be born again and to be united to Christ, that sinner is not only saved from his sins and reconciled to God, but he is united to a new community, a new family. God doesn't save people unto themselves. He introduces them into the family of God, the people of God, a new humanity, a new family, a new community that belongs to Him. The Christian not only has God as Father, which is indeed the best news, but more good news is that we have our fellow Christians as brothers and sisters. To be a Christian at all is to be part of this new community, which brings with it new notions about our sense of identity and belonging, new relationships, new responsibilities for how to live life together in the body of Christ, new privileges, new commandments, all kinds of new entailments by virtue of being part of this new community. I hope this is obvious to you, but just ingrain this into your soul. Community in the Christian life is not optional. Community, being a family, being a people, it's not an optional add-on to the Christian faith. Peter assumes this in our passage, and that is why it ought to strike us as something so odd to find a Christian who's not a member of a local church. Like, I just don't think the apostles would have had a category for that. Like, what do you think this is about? You're part of a new family now. Like, that's, that's a big part of the good news. You've been united to a new community. You can't be a lone ranger Christian. You can't just kind of go off and do your own thing. To, to think that way is sub-Christian. In fact, it's non-Christian. It's not the way the Bible would have us to think. My friend, I wonder, have you ever taken the time to consider how much of the New Testament is taken up with how Christians are to live faithfully in community with other Christians? Like Christians who think that way, like I don't need to be part of a church, I don't know how you read the Bible. Like you just must skip large portions of the New Testament. Of course, the New Testament contains a great deal about doctrine, which is the doctrine of God and of Christ and of the Holy Spirit and of the world to come. There's a great deal about personal piety and sanctification, but one of the largest slices of the pie, like if you just added up the number of verses, one of the largest slices of the pie in the New Testament is about how we are to live in community with other Christians. There are entire books of the New Testament that have Christian community as their theme. The New Testament is thick with a sort of corporate consciousness, a corporate consciousness that doesn't erode our sense of being individuals before God, but rather complements and enhances it by showing us also that our individual lives come together with other individuals to create a distinctly Christian community. And again, you see this in the image Peter is using in our passage. Christ is the cornerstone, right? And we, like individual stones, come together to form 
a temple, a spiritual house. There are no individual stones that make up the spiritual house. They have to come together if we're going to do that. You have to be in community if you're going to do that. And that's the beauty of the image. Like, like here's the cornerstone, and the idea is that as Christians come to Christ, come to the cornerstone, what are they doing? They're coming closer to one another. They, they come into relationship with one another as they come into relationship with Christ. And again, we see this also in the collective nouns that Peter uses. To be a Christian is to be part of a royal priesthood, a new race, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. These expressions illustrate for us one of the most foundational truths about the Christian life, and that is that it is a life that is lived in community with the people of God. If I have a new Christian before me, and we're doing Christianity 101, like what are some of those basic things you need to know about what it means to be a Christian, this is part of the Christianity 101 syllabus. To be a Christian at all is to be part of this new community. It is to be in relationship with other Christians. Well, what if I'm an introvert? There's no exception clause for the introverts. Well, well, what if I had a bad church experience? There's no footnote for the people who had bad church. Well, what if, what if I got burned by some Christians in my background? Y'all, there's no addendum to the New Testament. There's no exception to this. This is part of the core of who we are and what we do. We are the people of God. We're a new humanity. We're a new family. This is fundamental, foundational, basic to what it means to be a Christian. I so appreciate the way Mark Dever captures this in that little blue book. We've given it out to a lot of our members, uh, Discipling by Mark Dever. If you don't have that book, you can get it for free from our bookstall. I appreciate the way he captures this in that little blue book. He says, today is the day of iPhones and iPads, iTunes, and let's just say the whole iLife. But is there any space in the iLife for the we life of Christianity? At the heart of Christianity is God's desire for a people to display His character. They do this through their obedience to His Word and their relationships with Him and with each other. Therefore, He sent His Son to call out a people to follow Him. Then in their life together, these people display the we life of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Together they demonstrate God's own love, holiness, and oneness. Yes, Christianity invokes taking the road less traveled and hearing a different drummer, but not in the way that Frost and Thoreau meant. Christianity is not for loners or individualists. It is for a people traveling together down the narrow path that leads to life. You must follow and you must lead. You must be loved and you must love. And we love others best by helping them to follow Jesus down the pathway of life. The New Testament vision is a plural vision. It's a corporate vision. My brother, my sister, is there space in your I life for the we life? Of Christianity? Do you see yourself as part of the people of God? And do you understand the privileges and responsibilities, the stewardships that this entails upon you? Do you feel a sense of solidarity and mutual commitment with the Christians who are sitting around you now? Do you see them as part of you? And do you view yourself as part of them? Peter assumes in this passage that to belong to God is to belong to God's 
people. To be united to Christ is to be united to His bride, the church. To come to Him, the chief cornerstone, is to assemble with other living stones in order to erect a spiritual house. This identity in the Christian community is meant to profoundly shape our self-awareness. Who am I? Who are you? I am a Christian. I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. I'm a part of the people of God, the family of God, the new community that God has made. And I embrace all that that means and signifies for my life. Now, let me highlight a second assumption. To be a Christian is to be a part of a new community. Secondly, and due to time, I think this will have to be the last one for today. Second assumption. Our other group identities, our other group identities, diminish in the face of this new group identity. Our other group identities diminish in the face of this new group identity. Twenty years ago, I think, this would be an entirely uncontroversial statement among most Christians, or at least a whole lot of Christians. However, today, in an age of increasing race consciousness, identity politics, political partisanship, and social tribalism, this has once again become a highly controversial idea, that our Christian identity effectively relativizes our group identities, and in fact, melts them to forge a new group identity, that is, the people of God. Now, where am I getting this in our text? Where am I saying Peter's assuming this? It's that cataclysmic statement in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once, as far as I'm concerned, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Our other group identities diminish in the face of this new group identity. Now, of course, under the Old Covenant, the Jews were God's people and the peoples of the world were not. What is most extraordinary and wonderful and glorious about this statement, 1 Peter 2.10, because remember, Peter is writing to Gentile Christians scattered all over Asia Minor. Peter the Jew, by the way, Peter is writing to them and he wants them to know that they are the people of God that God is not only saving Jews, but He's saving men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, from every type of group, we could say. And He's trying to elevate their sense of privilege and status. They are God's special people. They are God's chosen race. They belong to Him. They are a people for His own possession. So we could take verse 10 to, in essence, mean Once you were not God's people, but now you are God's people. And that's certainly true. But I'm asking, is there more to this statement from Peter? And I think there is. Because the text says, once you were not a people. He doesn't say once you were not God's people. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. There's an assumption here, is there not? In the most meaningful sense, there are really only two types of people in the world. Those who are the people of God and those who are not 
which is why he could look at these Gentiles from all kinds of various groups and backgrounds scattered across Asia Minor and say to them, you were never a people. There was a time when you were not a people. You had no group identity that counted for anything before God. You were, in effect, no people at all. He says, once you were not a people. Now, does he mean you were not Greeks or Romans or Cretans or Samaritans, that you were never slaves, that you were never members of the aristocracy, that you were never men or women? Well, no, of course not. He's not denying that they have other group identities, but I think his point is that those group identities didn't amount to anything of significance before God. What matters, what confers privilege upon people, what brings blessing to them is being numbered among the people of God. And in a sense, all other group identities are just relativized in the face of this great privilege of being God's people. Like, he wants them to know this is the big deal about your identity, not that you're Greek or Cretan or Samaritan or a man or a woman or part of the enfranchised class or the disenfranchised class. The big thing about who you are is this new group identity that you are God's people, a people for His own possession, a new race, a chosen race, a holy nation. Now, I'm not saying that our other group identities cannot inform our sense of identity. I'm not saying that. But this prevailing identity, that we are the people of God, significantly relativizes our other group identities. What confers status, dignity, and privilege is not primarily your skin color, your gender, your background, your age, whatever social group you're a part of. Rather, what confers status, dignity, and privilege is God considering us to be His own special people. privilege of belonging to God, it just sort of overwhelms everything else. It's just like so the most important thing about me. Like I just don't think of myself in these other categories. It's, it's that I belong to God, and this privilege just overwhelms everything else. These group identities lose their significance among the people of God. They lose their dominance, their prominence, their identity-defining quality. Peter's saying, what is true of you Elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. What's true of you? You're God's people. Whatever things might be different between you, you are God's special people. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So let me say this by way of application. We, brothers and sisters, must not view our various group identities as defining us that this is the most important thing about who I am, that I am a middle-class, white, millennial, heteronormative, cisgender male. What matters is that I belong to God and that I belong to you as the people of God. That identity just rises above everything else and in a sense diminishes the differences between people, relativizes these other group identities that are vying for identity-defining privilege in our lives. It is membership among the people of God that defines us, and far from being a recipe for bland uniformity, 
This becomes a recipe for unity in diversity as people from all different social groups enter in among the people of God. And what people see is that a far more significant group identity is at work among these people. It's at work defining and shaping and uniting them. They belong to God, and therefore they belong to one another. I'm sure I've told this story before, but it's worth repeating. When we first came to Winston-Salem, we did one of the things they tell you to do, and that is to meet with kind of the church planting gurus in the area. And there were a few of them, as I recall, that we met with. And I can remember one of these brothers so confidently saying to me, uh, Alex, we have a lot of churches in Winston-Salem. Now, you're coming here. You want to plant a new church. Uh, we, have, we need all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people. What particular group is your church going to be about? What particular group are you guys going to reach? Friends, I object to that question. Like, we're not targeting some particular sliver of the population that we're going to, to really reach, that we're going to find our demographic, our niche, and this is going to be the group that we go after. I think that bastardizes the New Testament vision for the church. We're to be the people of God where all these diverse people, different people, come together as the people of God. And this larger group identity, this larger unity is what's bringing us together, not being a millennial or being black or being white or homeschooling or public schooling or all these other things that, that balkanize different Christians and silo them into all these different churches. What unites us is being the people of God. And that banner, that identity it's like a rallying cry for people from all these different groups to come together as a new race, as a new family, as a new people, a people for God's own possession. Brothers and sisters, may it never be true that this is the church of one group. We are the people of God, and the makeup and constitution of this church must reflect a larger commitment to being a new race and a new people all together than belonging to any other particular group. There was one more assumption I wanted us to look at, but I think I'm pretty well out of time. I'll just state it, and we won't really come back to it. The last assumption was this. This group identity confers upon us the most extraordinary sense of privilege and the most profound sense of belonging. This group identity confers upon us the most extraordinary sense of privilege and the most, pro the most profound sense of belonging. Let me just say this in closing. Peter is saying to these people, once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He doesn't put it in the category of entitlement. He puts it in the category of mercy. God himself has chosen to be merciful to you. And though you were scattered and, as Paul would say, without hope and without God in the world, now God has made peace through the blood of his son. He's brought you near. He's made you part of his people. And, and Peter, it's like he feels the need to impress upon these Christians this sense of privilege but more than that, this sense of belonging. I belong among the people of God. I belong to God. That's who I am. That's why I'm to conceive of myself. I'm to know that I belong to God and I belong to His people. Now, in 
my limited experience, a lot of people have trouble with this. A lot of people struggle. In fact, they're tortured, wondering, can I really belong to God? Do I really belong among his people? Will I ever be fit for heaven? And they look inward at all their sin and all that is disillusioning about themselves, and they conclude, how, how can it be that I belong to God? It just can't be. I can't belong to him. So let's bring it full circle. Don't be an expressive individualist. Don't define who you are based on how you feel about yourself. Don't define your identity by your remaining sin. Uh, Don't say, I am who Satan says I am. Brother, sister, believe better than you feel. Trust the Word of God. The Word of God tells you you are a people for His own possession. You belong to God. And that awareness and that assurance is to pervade your sense of self-awareness. It's not in a world of idealism. It's in a real world with sins and failures and all these things that make us ashamed. In that conduct, you still nonetheless belong to God. And we have a right through what Christ has done through the mercy of God to know, to feel in confidence and in truth, in assurance, I belong to the Lord. And I belong among His people. With all that's discouraging and disillusioning about what I see when I look inward, the Word of God tells me that I belong to Him. That is the identity He gives to me. And even though I don't feel like I belong, even though I wonder, I still feel strangely, I don't feel always at ease in the presence of the people of God or before God in prayer. I'm to believe what His Word says that I am part of a people for his own possession through Jesus Christ. I belong to him, and I am who he says that I am, not what I feel. Let's pray together. Father, this exposition from your word and the assertions and ideas that have been conveyed, I regret have been somewhat scattered and profuse. I I pray that everything that is good and right and true would remain in our minds and in our hearts and would bear fruit in our lives. Everything that's been said and conveyed that is true from your word, that it would remain and it would yield fruit a hundredfold. Please bless your word to all of our hearts. Please help us to see ourselves as you see us. We've been taught that's part of what repentance is, agreeing with God. We pray that you would give us faith now to see who we are before you in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And for all those who have not come to Jesus and have no right to confidence that they belong to God, May they be so moved to come to Him now, the cornerstone, that they might believe on Him and not be put to shame. May you bestow your mercy and your grace and favor on those who are far from you. Bring the strangers home, we pray. Lord, if there's anyone here who feels like they have never belonged, may they know that through Jesus they can belong in the family of God. 
that they could have God as Father and these Christians sitting around them as brothers and sisters, that there is the deepest and most profound belonging to be had in the church and among your people. Please persuade us of these things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.